just a quick disclaimer about this interview. Normally, when a forensic psychologist is assisting law enforcement in an effort to better understand a case or, more specifically, a perpetrator, they would have full access to the information necessary to make this determination. Here, Mr. Johnson only had access to the documents and information that I gave him, which were limited in nature. So it is important for you to understand that he's giving me his professional thoughts and opinions based on limited information about the case. He was able to provide some very interesting observations, including some possible theories that I had never considered, so I am happy to be able to share those with you. But just remember that those are theories based on different possibilities that could have occurred that day. There will be a few points where I will have to redact information, and you'll hear that irritating beep. And while I know that's frustrating for you as a listener, because you have invested time in this case, but I don't want to mention specifics with regard to weapons or injuries that have not been released to the public. One final note. Because the very first articles in the newspaper about this murder included a description of Jeanette being partially clad, we have always understood that there was a sexual component to this crime. However, I have not been transparent about everything that that specifically entails. The reason for that is to protect the integrity of the case. But I do feel it's important that you understand the viciousness of this attack. What occurred in that Gamble's basement on that day in 1983 was so horrific that it eventually led me to this professional to get some information about what type of person might be capable of the type of violence perpetrated against Jeanette Robertson. Mr. Johnson has 30 years' experience with psychopaths and sadists and the crimes that they commit, as well as experience in providing education and consultation in areas of abuse, sexual offenses, physical violence, and domestic abuse. In the show notes, I will provide a link to his website where you can view his published articles and books, as well as view a list of consult work that he has done with various law enforcement entities across the country. In fact, his name was passed along to me by a Kent County law enforcement officer who had taken one of his courses. I want to thank Mr. Johnson for taking time out of his busy schedule to provide some instruction and his thoughts on this case as well as violent offenders in general. I think you'll find the discussion as interesting and informative as I did. I'm Scott Johnson, a licensed psychologist. I specialize in the area of forensic psychology related to sexual predators and uh, violent offenders. I'm also an author, uh, conduct a lot of uh, research and publish materials to train law enforcement and U.S. probation across the country. First of all, let's explain to the listener what a forensic psychologist is trained to do and how you assist law enforcement. Well, one of the things I would do is um, provide training to understand the violent offender from a different perspective, a more psychological perspective. And I may also assist on cold cases to, again, give a new or different perspective about the crime. Um, forensic psychologists in general basically were answering questions for the court 
about a specific question, such as competency, custody, things like that. Um, and so some engage in uh, behavioral analysis with law enforcement. However, uh, most engage in a lot of mental health questions um, and answering those questions for the courts. All right. Now, let's start specific to Jeanette's case, but general observations. Based on the limited documents and information that you were able to review, first, just what stands out to you about the homicide? Well, again, the limited information that I've reviewed um, it appears to be an anger-based um, sexual assault or anger-based assault. Uh, I'm not clear that the was necessarily the work of a sadist or whether it was just simply to uh, done to throw off investigators, uh, but it was very much appearing to be a uh, very targeted personal um, personal crime. Would you expect that then to be someone that she knew rather than just a random offender? Something like this, it's very typical that it's um, somebody that was known to the victim rather than just a, a random um, hit-and-miss kind of uh, offense. Without discussing the specific items that were used, what do you make of the use of multiple weapons that were apparently um, weapons of opportunity? Well, when there's weapons of opportunity, generally that infers that the person, number one, was more disorganized or impulsive or acting more on impulse and emotions than significantly pre-planning their, their assault. Um, and so the use of weapons at the scene uh, generally makes it probably a bit more personal. Um, so when we had spoken and I'd gone through some items with you, you had some thoughts on possibilities, whether it could be single or multiple offenders. Just break down your thoughts on first, if it were just based on what you know, um, the single perpetrator idea versus the two perpetrator. What gave you that thought? And, um, you know, just break it down for the listener as far as if it was a single perpetrator, um, what w it would say differently than if it was uh, two perpetrators? Well, if it were a um, single perpetrator that still would fit with the offense certainly and again based on the the, the limited information that i've had to review um, however it does also suggest the possibility of a second person involved that may have inflicted some of the wounds but not the more dramatic wounds so it would be more typical if it were two people for example that one person might be the more sadistic or or anger um, uh, based offender who's committing most of the serious injuries and destruction and the second person um, certainly injuring the person or damaging the person but to a lesser extent. See I find that interesting because uh, I know that uh, I haven't rolled out to I mean there's certainly a possibility and that's why I wanted to kind of get an idea of why you thought that was. Um, now what about the location? What does the what does the location tell you, just based on it being a public place and a high risk of being interrupted, the amount of injury done? What does that tell you about the um, and, and things that were done to her that were not even necessary in the, you know, to kill her? So what does that tell you about the offender? Well, there's a couple of different directions, again, based on the limited information that I've reviewed. Um, for example, uh, first off, that maybe the, the offense started out to be something more of a uh, come on to her sexually, perhaps, or um, perhaps an attempted abduction gone wrong. Um, 
and sometimes when that happens, uh, a lot more anger and violence is used than was intended and therefore explaining the weapons of opportunity. If, for example, the perpetrator um, was not expecting the victim to be able to fight back and resist to the degree that she may have, um, but the, the offense happening um, in an area where there was high likelihood of being interrupted or um, caught for it, number one, usually rules out a sadist uh, offender that pre-planned this because typically the sadist wants to take their victim to a pre-selected location and take their time with uh, I- implementing their evil plan, if you will. And so this, to me, seems more likely to be something that was more impulsive and maybe intending to be an abduction or a rape or an assault, but not necessarily all three. And it appears possibly that things just got out of control when, again, um, if, in fact, the perpetrator was not expecting the resistance that the victim put up, kind of changed the whole uh, plan of the offense. Um, Now, I do want to get into the the sadistic portion a bit, even if we're not, though we're not sure that that plays a part in this case, just so that people understand, can a perpetrator be considered st- uh, sadistic if they threaten what they will do to the victim when they're conscious and to scare them, like shut up or I'll kill you, even if all or most of the physical wounds were made while the victim was unconscious? Well, that could still be sadistic. And again, uh, if we just define sadism as the, um, the, the primarily two two things that a sadist wants to do. One is to cause pain, suffering, and or humiliation. And the second part is after causing the pain, suffering, humiliation, they want to actually break the victim and cause total fear and total submission. So those two parts typically have to come together. So certainly you could threaten someone and then watch for that fear to set in and then implement the um, damage to the person. Um, if someone's unconscious, um, but not dead, but unconscious, um, that would likely take away from the sadist satisfaction, and therefore that's part of this that doesn't necessarily make sense for a sadist to have committed the crime. And again, if we take a bell curve and look at averages, there's always someone somewhere that does things different than others in their in their group. So it may be that this particular person was sadistic and simply enjoyed doing things while the victim was unconscious, but that's typically not what the sadist wants. The sadist typically wants the person alive and aware and um, inflicting pain, suffering, humiliation with the victim actually responding to that. So that's the piece here that kind of doesn't make sense is if someone continued to damage the victim that either A, it was just uh, more um, an emotional venting of anger um, and or um, just an attempt to basically cover up the uh, crime and mislead detectives. That's See, that's fascinating. I had not even considered that. So that to me is that you said that. I'm glad because it's something that I really hadn't even considered. All right. So just generally, what are some of the personality traits of sadistic offenders? If you if you didn't know that someone was sadistic, but if I ran across someone on the street, you know, what would their personality be like? Well, a lot of what we see certainly is the uh, you know two extremes. One would be a, a, a mostly blank emotional um, reaction to people that they don't necessarily experience much of any. Um, emotions. On the other extreme, it would be someone that simply the the primary emotion that they experience would simply be um, 
you know, a significant arousal to the pain, suffering, humiliation of other people, so extreme arousal per se, but they lack conscience. And in lacking conscience means that they can basically hurt people without second guessing any of it. They simply will hurt people. Um, the second thing there is we have callous, unemotional um, um, traits, which means, again, they, they, they don't feel compassion and Probably more important, they really don't experience a set of, uh, or for example, fear. And that's a problem because if, if we take fear out of the equation, if, if our brain doesn't even experience a sense of danger or fear, then we can pretty much do whatever we do um, with more precision. Um, we also see a significant grandiose sense of worth and people that can basically charm the siding off of a house. You know, we think of some politicians that are probably very much like this where they can talk the talk, but you don't see them for four more years until election time, but they'll come back and brag about all the wonderful things they did for you, which was actually nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, a couple other things to throw in there. We've got pathological lying. They love to lie, and it's arousing to them to get away with it. Um, and also a lot of impulsivity, uh, parasitic lifestyle, for example, where they're living off other people and significantly under the radar. Um, and they're very good at avoiding detection because we take away conscience, fear, concern, empathy, um, and they can basically do what they do. And if we just use as one example, um, Ariel Castro in Ohio, who had the three women in his basement for 10 years, um, socialized with people. No one had a concern. He had people in the house, around the house. Nobody knew what was going on inside. And imagine how disconnected from most emotions you'd have to be to live that double life. And so that's really what we're talking about with the psychopath. And sadists, in my opinion, are all psychopaths. So with, except they also have a, a, a need to destruct people, to harm people, to cause significant destruction to them. Mm. Um, can you give me the psychology or the type of person, um, the type of offender who insinuates themselves into a case? What are their reasons for doing it? Um, there, there could be several reasons, and again, each circumstance is a little bit different, but if we take someone who is more psychopathic or sociopathic where the conscience really isn't there, they may interject themselves, number one, just to find out what the police actually have, um, you know, kind of snooping around, maybe asking questions. And the second reason is many of them actually um, like to dangle that danger, like, you know, yes, I did this crime, I'm here, but you don't know I did it, but I'm here asking questions. Or they may volunteer themselves for uh, being questioned, stating they witnessed something, just to kind of test the water again, play with the officer. So it's it you know kind of different reasons for interjecting. Um, another reason certainly could if, if for someone whether they're psychopathic or non-psychopathic might just be to get a general sense of what the police did find and how close they are to maybe identifying um, them you know being identified as the actual perpetrator. So there's a variety of reasons, but basically interjecting is to either play games with the officers and find out what they know on one extreme or at the other extreme, um, just out of fear, just trying to find out what the officers know so they know if they need to run or not run, etc. Mm-hmm, that makes sense. All right. So um, as far as Jeanette, since I did describe to you that there were a couple people that, that may have had interest in her at the time, um, would 
what you see at the crime scene in your with the limited information that I gave you, um, do you feel like it could be consistent with someone that she had turned down that maybe didn't even um, she didn't even have the same feeling about him as he had about her, but um, he had maybe blown it up more in his head, their relationship. And then let's say he just sees that she's interested in someone else. Could it have gotten out of control in that regard, do you think? Well, I mean, again, speculating that, you know, what are the possibilities for this offense? And, uh, you know, certainly that could be a scenario that someone felt that they were being put off or, you know, she was breaking it off with them or not as interested in commitment with them. Um, and we may have seen certainly a violent reaction to that. Um, and a person that would do that typically has a history of aggression toward other people, short-tempered. Um, and so usually we can find a history, whether it's employment or police records, for example, for disorderly conduct fights, road raids, things like that. Usually we see that kind of background with, with these people, although some are still under the radar because they haven't got caught. So, yes, it may have been a spurned lover or um, a, a prospective lover. Mm-hmm. But you would expect it's more likely than not that they had some sort of anger history or other violent offenses or something in that regard. Well, if it were someone that got spurned, someone that was a potential or current dating in a dating situation, for example, usually we would have seen that kind of control come out somewhere. And unfortunately, sometimes once they get caught, that's when we find out what the history was because nobody came forward before. Oh, but yeah. usually, usually we see that. Now, on the other hand, if it was something more nefarious, if, you know, for example, in many of these types of cases where, let's say it was the spouse that was involved and or the spouse and, and uh, the new significant other or partner, um, this may also kind of fit with that too because the type of destruction or damage to the body would also be consistent with several different uh, theories, for example, possibly just out of hatred, out of destruction of the body, and or to punish, for example, a lover, husband, etc., that was uh, accusing her of, of cheating, infidelity, being sexually unfaithful, uh, may have wanted to damage her in a way that simply put, uh, if I can't have you, no one can, kind of mm-hmm. thinking. What is a lust murder, and do you think, would Jeanette's be considered a lust murder? I don't know if that's a, a- um, in your lane of expertise, or if that's a, um, a word that police use? Well, you know, I think the way it's been typically used, it's basically um, one for erotic satisfaction. If we think about, for example, um, somebody that enjoys strangling a person just to the point of almost passing out during sex and then releasing that, you know, kind of lustful sex play that could also turn turn accidentally homicidal versus those that have a need to actually kill to do that. So we might say that the erotic um, or, or lust murder is, in fact, still a sadist, but, um, you know, they may do less destructive um, body damage to the victim, i.e. they may just strangle the person uh, versus dismantle the body or things like that. I don't hear that term used much of at all anymore. Um, I, I, I really, uh, it's not one that's common. Okay. I was just curious because I came across it and it, I wasn't even sure what it meant. Um, do we, do you have a sense that what the motive was for this as far as, or, or is it, is that sort of something up in the air? 
Do you feel it was sexually motivated or or not, if that was secondary? Well, again, given the information that I reviewed, which is limited, um, I would be more inclined to think that the may have either A, been a, a anger or revenge punishment type of thing, i.e., um, if I can't have you, no one can have you, or let me punish you for what you've done. You've cheated on me. You want to leave me. Uh, I just wondered if that was the motivation or if that was – and you're basically, I think what you're saying is it's hard, right, with what information you have, you, you wouldn't be able to tell, but it could be that – because you had said this earlier, it could be that, that the sexual aspect of it was used as a cover-up to – to, um, Right. And so, okay. so for, you know, so if it was more of a punishment to where they would have been deliberate, okay, but if it was simply meant to throw off detectives to make it appear more gruesomely sadistic, when in fact it wasn't, you know, the person wasn't sadistic, they were simply just trying to cover the bases, um, then, you know, it's a different type of offender, but that, um, that, that's pretty, in, uh, that, that would be a, an emotionally, reactive type of offender because whatever went wrong, whether they were there to abduct her, abuse her, rape her, or just threaten her, when things went awry, um, with everything that happened there, it seemed like it would have still been more personal because of, of the, the amount of time, which I, I'm unclear, but I'm, it, it was under the impression it may have been a couple of hours for the offense. Well, and, and there is a, there is a, a couple hour gap between which it likely occurred. And it, I think we have to assume that there's a likely possibility that he got caught back there between customers because there was a steady flow. So during portions of it, he, if she was unconscious, he was, you know, may have just been trying to keep quiet or if she wasn't at that time having to keep her quiet. So it's certainly a possibility that he was interrupted during portions of it. I mean, I could almost envision a scenario where he he, you know, attacked her in the pet department proper, drags her into the back, and then starts doing some of the other stuff, gets interrupted, and then has to keep her quiet. And then imagine that buildup of, you know, um, anger and rage after yeah. that customer leaves and then just laying into her. You know what I mean? That's what uh, I was feeling. And that may be the case. I would probably say it was more likely either A, just still a cover-up for... Um, make, you know, making it look like it was uh, a sadist versus uh, it might have just been an anger-based wanting to kill her and the, uh, the rest was just to torture, cover up, but it wasn't necessarily sadistic in nature. On the other hand, again, most sadists would not have conducted or engaged in that type of behavior um, at the scene where they're likely to be interrupted and caught and they wouldn't have their weapons or instruments of destruction, you know, to say it was all weapons of opportunity. Um, the, you know, I'll say this that I'm aware of basically um, had their tools with them. They did not rely on simply weapons of opportunity. Yeah, and I had read a little bit about that. That's fascinating. I'm I'm going to be looking at it from a little bit of a different perspective after talking to you just to the cover-up portion because I never, like I said, consider that, and I think it's now that you're saying that, definitely a possibility. Well, and right. again, I, and I just want to caveat based on the information I've reviewed. Now, certainly there could be that sadist who decided to act on it. However, here's one other piece that I would be concerned about is if this type of offense did not happen prior to or since that that offense, 
than to say it was a sadist who likely would keep repeating it. Um, that, again, to me, points more to personal and a cover-up, or it was in part sadistic by a lover or husband or someone, simply because they were trying to punish her and destruct her. Um, so if, the cry, if the, a similar type of crime was not happening prior to or since, that, to me, also kind of rules out a sadist. And, you know, again, because they would typically want to continue to engage in these similar acts of behavior. Well, that makes a lot of sense. That's okay. And again, not to say it wasn't, and we're not pointing the fingers at anyone. No. Just kind of analyzing the, the information. Um, you know, and I'm, it, uh, it was my understanding that the FBI provided a profile of the suspect to law enforcement, and therefore this crime was entered into the National Crime Database, which means if there were same and similar offenses elsewhere, it should have popped up on, on FBI or um, other law enforcement radar. Right. That's uh, that's would be my understanding as well. All right. I've just got one more, so I don't keep you. And what, based on your history of study, do you think sadistic individuals are born or made, nature or nurture? Is that, or is that even an uh, um, answerable question? Well, I mean, the theory is is that you know, first off, just stick to psychopaths. A psychopath is born with a deformed brain. And so it's a, a genetic biological anomaly, nothing we can do for that for treatment. Uh, sociopath is born with a normal brain, but due to ex extreme circumstances, extreme abuse, neglect, um, etc., um, they actually uh, rewire the brain toward psychopath. And, but the sociopath can have an allegiance to a person or a family or a gang, but no one else. Psychopath has no allegiance to anyone. No connection, no affiliation. So basically, once we get there, we're done. There's nothing we can do for treatment. Now, if we had sadism on, on that, um, we know that psychopaths, as, as a nature, many have a need to stalk and um, hurt, physically hurt other people. But the, I believe the working theory here would be that it's through conditioning that the sexual component and body destruction, sexual destruction component gets added through maybe extreme abusive environments, extreme neglect, or um, uh, witnessing things, witnessing parental violence, for example, is a very powerful um, factor to consider that we see that a lot in the background of serial murderers, serial rapists, child abusers, pet abusers. Um, so, that, you know, more likely it was a conditioning over time that led the person to uh, engage in sadistic behavior. And again, this offense may not have been sadistic. It may have been uh, more of an anger venting that it involved what appears to be sadistic behavior or as an attempt to cover up. Hmm. Wow, you've actually given me a lot of stuff to think about. And it's funny because I'm at the very end of this season and this investigation, but it's a case that I've researched for five years now, so I suspect until it's solved, I'll just keep thinking more and more and have different ideas about it. But I really appreciate this. This may be now my favorite interview that I've done because I got so much information that when I go now to edit it, I'm going to get to listen to it all over again and take it in and probably apply it to other cases, not just this one. So I have to thank you for that so much. I appreciate it, really. You got it wrong. I'm glad I could shed a little different angle on this.